Ready? Number one, Jesus has pretty harsh words for rich people, right? We've heard this already in the last couple months. Number two, Jesus has been asking us to think deeply about problems with power and how it's used against others. That's been in there. And number three, tax collectors are the worst, right? We've gotten, these are the messages we've gotten from Luke in the last real big chunk. In her book, The Great Emergence, which is uh, the last book that Phyllis Tickle wrote before she died in 2015, she's an author and theologian, kind of an all around awesome lady. Um, it began with these words. She said, every 500 years or so, Western culture, along with those parts of the world that have been colonized or colonialized by it, goes through a time of enormous upheaval a time in which essentially every part is reconfigured. From the perspective of the 21st century and thus from our own place in Western history, it is fairly easy for us to see the pattern writ large over the last two millennia. Most of us have little or no difficulty going back 500 years in our understanding of Christian West, the Christianized Western story, seeing the Great Reformation staring back at us. We can see from the latter years of the 14th century to the dramatic 1517 when Luther posted his 95 theses on the door in Wittenberg, the process of wrenching, deconstructing, liberating, anxiety-producing, world-rendering change as it works its way straight as the proverbial arrow from one regimen for ordering life to a new and unprecedented one. We can, of course, She's awesome, right? That's how she began that book. Okay, this was her start, yes. We can, of course, go back further than that. She does this in the book, Many Theologians. We have to do this in seminary and Christian history courses. We go back further. You can look a 1,000 years earlier to the Great Schism, 1,500 years earlier to the Great Decline and the Fall of the Roman Empire. This is the pattern of history every 500 years or so, as she says. And that puts us fortunately or unfortunately, whatever way you look at it, right in the middle of another one of these upheavals. Phyllis Tickle called this the Great Emergence, hence the title of her book. She also quotes Anglican Bishop Mark Dyer, who called this current reformation in the church a giant rummage sale. He said, every 500 years, the Holy Spirit has a rummage sale. Now, I love this so much. I have a picture in my head. Just picture it with me because it's delightful of Jesus walking around the big C church and holding things up like hymnals or paraments or pews, service times, buildings, job descriptions, doctrine policies, institutional structures, and Marie Kondoing it all. Just, does this bring me joy, Jesus asks, clutching an alb to his heart for a minute. I could think about this all day. Jesus just being like, does this bring me joy? And I mean like, no. Letting it go. I just, I love it. I love thinking about what this would be like. I could do it. This could be my whole sermon. I won't, but it could be my whole sermon. Just a rummage sale that Jesus decides on. I love it so much. And yet, when we do this kind of work, this reforming work, there's a lot of grief and loss and fear. Some people love these pyramids, and if I threw them out, there would be a big, there'd be some big feelings about it, right? 
There's loss and fear and grief in the midst of this kind of change. We get it. It's all a part of it. And I, I hate to say this, but we were in the middle of this kind of change before the pandemic happened. It just accelerated a little bit. We continue to be in it now. The pandemic wasn't the catalyst, is what I'm saying, for the reformation of the church that we are currently in. It was already underway. The pandemic just put a magnifying glass on it, hit the gas a little bit. So we come together on this Reformation Sunday in 2022 to wonder together what it means that reforming is built into our DNA as people of God. It's into our foundation, into our very core. When Martin Luther posted his 95 complaints, I like to think of them as complaints versus uh, theses. That's, we don't really like that word. It's, not, it's a complaint. Against the door of the church, he wasn't looking to begin a new denomination. He was simply trying to hold the church accountable. He wanted the church to be who they said they were. To follow the example of the one they said they were following. He wanted them to stop charging people for God's grace. To stop taking advantage of people's feelings of unworthiness. He wanted them to move back to the gospel of love and grace that he felt was just pouring out of the pages of scripture. We have been following Jesus in a section of Luke's gospel over the, the past few months called the travel narrative, which mostly shares these encounters of Jesus uh, with people along the way to Jerusalem. We've been traveling with him for a while now, and these previous encounters have taught us some things as listeners. So we're going to do just a quick recap. Ready? Number one. Jesus has pretty harsh words for rich people, right? We've heard this already in the last couple months. Number two, Jesus has been asking us to think deeply about problems with power and how it's used against others. That's been in there. And number three, tax collectors are the worst, right? We've gotten, these are the messages we've gotten from Luke in the last real big chunk. So these are pretty set ideas by this point in Jesus's ministry in Luke. And if we were disciples walking with Jesus on this travel narrative, or even early church people hearing these stories for the first time, we would have made up our minds about these characters by this point. It has not been subtle. So the first details we get about Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. The word chief can be translated as ruler or ruling. So he was a big deal guy doing a job everyone hated him for, and he was very wealthy. The complete package for getting owned by Jesus, right? That we are ready for it. You can almost hear the listening crowd rubbing their hands together with glee. Oof, it's going to be good. Now, what else do we all know about Zacchaeus, which Katie talked about thanks to a Sunday school song that many of us know? Basically, every kid's Bible ever written, we hear that he was... Short, a wee little man. Yes, he was short. Now here's where I'm going to burst the bubble just a little, and I'm so sorry, but not that sorry, actually. Uh, the Greek isn't actually clear whether he is short in height or short in reputation. As in, everyone looked down on him. Katie was very right when she said he was very disliked. 
Zacchaeus is trying to see who Jesus was. He ran ahead of the crowd who definitely knows him, definitely has negative feelings about him, and he climbs a tree. Now notice that it says in the scripture, he was trying to see Jesus, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. That doesn't mean because he was so short he couldn't see over tall people. It means the crowd did not care that he was trying to see Jesus because he was a bad guy. Basically pushing him off to the edge. Get out of here, Zacchaeus. Nobody wants you here. So he climbs a tree, specifically a sycamore tree. Interesting to note, this is the only time in the whole Bible this type of tree is noted. That feels important, right? Anytime when things are named only once or twice in the Bible, there's a specific reason why this is the case. This is no exception. Sycamore trees sit kind of low to the ground. Their leaves are low to the ground too. And why not a mightier tree, you might ask? Why not a taller one? Why this tree? Why here? I have a picture of it. Yeah, Nick got that picture up. That's a uh, sycamore tree. Sometimes translated sycamore fig because it's not exactly like an American sycamore tree. It's different. You see the branches split really low. They say this is the type of tree children climb often, which apparently is hilarious. I didn't know that. Uh, lots of leaves low to the ground makes me wonder if it was just as likely Zacchaeus tried to hide in the tree than see from it. See, I think Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he doesn't want Jesus to see him. And boy, do I understand Zacchaeus here. He knows, he knows he is not the kind of person who the Messiah is going to want to see. He wants to see but not be seen. And Jesus, as per usual, has a very different idea Jesus looked up at him and said, Zacchaeus, come down, for I am staying at your house today. Now, I imagine when Jesus stops and looks up and sees Zacchaeus and says, you come down from there, Zacchaeus, the crowd is like, yeah, Jesus, get him, right? They're like, yeah, this is going to be great. But of course, instead of reprimanding Zacchaeus, Jesus invites himself over for dinner. And all who saw it began to grumble. I'm guessing the early listeners of Luke's gospel felt this same way, and if we are honest, so do we. Zacchaeus is the actual worst, right? Come on, Jesus, that guy? We might say, well, Jeff Bezos, that guy, really? Oof. Elon, oof. They're the worst. It's at this point in the parable I realize I am unfortunately a lot more like the grumbling crowd than I am like Zacchaeus, and it makes me pretty uncomfortable. We understand them. They do not feel like Zacchaeus has done a single thing to deserve being noticed by Jesus. They say it out loud, even. He's got to be the guest of one who's a sinner. This guy, can you believe it? Now, it's important here to note that the, the location has not changed yet. Everybody kind of assumes this next part is at Zacchaeus' house. It's not. It's still right where they are, at the base of that sycamore tree with the crowd and Jesus. 
Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. This is often read and taught as a conversion experience. Sure, fine. Jesus has moved Zacchaeus so much by inviting himself over that he is now a changed man. But and here's another bubble-bursting moment. The Greek here is, again, very unclear. Where it's translated as I will can also mean my habit is. Well, doesn't that change it? And honestly, that's why I chose this text for this particular Sunday instead of the typical John 8 used on Reformation Sunday. Listen how it changes. And all who saw it began to grumble and said, Jesus has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I'm in the habit of giving to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'm in the habit of paying back four times as much. Zacchaeus is standing there in front of a grumbling cloud who doesn't think he deserves anything and saying out loud, this guy. And he immediately begins to name all the ways he's trying hard to be worthy of it. I'm not a bad guy, Jesus. I'm not a bad guy. Look, I, I do good stuff. I do good stuff, Jesus. Oof, Zacchaeus. Woo, this feels very familiar. He is trying to justify being seen and noticed by Jesus. I am worthy, he says. I am. I promise I am. Please don't take back your invitation. Don't listen to this crowd. I promise I'm good. I'm good enough. No matter how Lutheran we are or how many times we hear it, Christian culture and culture in general will tell us there is a right way and a wrong way to be a follower of God. How often do we look at ourselves or others and make judgments about how deserving we are or they are of God's love and grace? Even if it's not our call to make, we do it all the time. Zacchaeus has been looked down on and hated so much that he hides. And Jesus sees him, calls him by name, and invites himself in. Now, do you know what he doesn't do in this moment? He doesn't tell Zacchaeus to get a new job. He doesn't tell him to change how he's living. He doesn't require him to say a certain prayer or say what he believes or have a drastic conversion experience. Actually, it turns out he might maybe be doing some pretty good things already. Huh. Maybe we can't actually judge a little man by his little job title after all, huh? And Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and says, you are a son of Abraham. That's all I see. You are worthy of my notice just as you are, and who you are is enough. Imagine spending all this time working and working and working to show you are worthy of Jesus' notice, and he's like, well, yeah, I see you, no matter what. If I were Zacchaeus, I would be a messy, hot mess on the floor crying. Now, it would be 
Super easy to stop the story here to make this all and only about Zacchaeus. And sure, it is a story of Zacchaeus, but it is the gospel, the good news. And the gospel is not about Zacchaeus, it's about Jesus. This story is about Jesus. The last verse of the section of today's gospel, verse 10, is sometimes considered the theological summary of Luke's whole gospel. For the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. We have been hearing this truth through parables in the last few months, but now it's so clearly stated. Jesus has come to seek out and save the lost. All the action is on Jesus. All the work is God's. There is nothing, nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. That is beautiful and awful all at the same time. No matter who we are, what we do, who we hang out with, what our reputation is, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more and nothing we can do to make God love us less. The Reformation that we recognize and celebrate today was at its core about this very thing, the unwarranted, undeserved grace and love of God. Grace and love we didn't pay for or earn with good behavior or right belief. Just like a wee little man in a sycamore tree, God seeks you and finds you and sees you and loves you and saves you. No matter how hard we try to hide, whether we know we are hiding or not, we are worthy of God's notice, just as we are and who we are is enough. And that is worth celebrating. Amen. So a good reminder that we are, we are freed from all this work, 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 work that we feel like we have to do. God looks at you and says, you are a child of God already, just as you are. But it's also important to remember that the freedom we are given through grace, the salvation we are given through Jesus, frees us from working for ourselves so that we really believe strongly in the so that, so that we go out and serve our neighbor. Our freedom is on behalf of others. Our freedom is on behalf of those who think they're not worthy, who've been told they don't belong here, who've been pushed to the side of the crowd. Our freedom calls us to go and see them and to love them. So we take the freedom we've been given and we go in peace to love and serve the Lord.